This is Here There Be Dragons. I'm your host, Jess Myers. For our final episode, we'll be picking up where the Utopia episode left off. How do residents take ownership of their cities? Where are the safe havens and domestic spaces that residents make for themselves? The residents that I spoke with are a mix of Parisian natives, transplants from other parts of Paris, and immigrants. They live in the 20 arrondissements of Paris proper and in the many banlieues surrounding the city. And many split their time between both sides of the peripherique. I asked each of them, where is their personal city center? Where is the heart of the city to them? And how did they come to feel that way? This episode, we're exploring the many different Parises that exist for its residents. Some reached to the city's past for the answer. Some reached into their own past, while still others saw the city's heart in Paris's future. In this episode, I'll also be responding to some listener questions about themes from past episodes and how we went about certain aspects of the show. So look out for that at the end of the episode. The urbanism of Paris, and of France generally, has a very strong sense of centrality. The 20 districts of the city spiral out like a snail shell from the two small islands floating in the River Seine, the Ile de la Cité and the Ile Saint-Louis. These islands were once all that Paris was. The famous Notre-Dame Cathedral sits on the very edge of the Ile de la Cité, making it the center of the entire city, the point from which everything seems to revolve. For many in Paris and in France, this center holds strong symbolic significance, so much so that the highest honor for French citizens is to have their funeral mass at Notre-Dame. Here's Adélie. Notre-Dame, nobody really goes there. It's true that when a president dies, they have a mass in Notre-Dame. Symbolically, it remains really important. It's a political symbol, at least for a white Christian part of the population. After the terror attacks, the first mass was at Notre-Dame. When there are important or painful events, people go to Notre-Dame. For example, after the Air France crash about five or six years ago, the memorial mass was at Notre-Dame. There was a priest, a rabbi, an imam, a pastor, and readings from several religions. The memorial ceremony, the ceremony that represents the highest honor, is at Notre-Dame. It was Air France that organized the service out of respect for the victims. They organized it at Notre-Dame, not at the Sacré-Cœur. Due to its fame and grandeur, Notre-Dame and the Center City Islands are almost exclusively the domain of tourists. As we heard in the last episode with Léal Châtelet, sometimes the center is exactly the place that people avoid. But for Alice, the center took on another layer of significance because of a challenging year she spent there. Et donc, cette année que j'ai passée à Paris est une année assez particulière, euh, dans le sens où j'ai fréquenté beaucoup les milieux de la drogue. 
That year that I spent in Paris was pretty weird because I spent a lot of time with people who do drugs. A lot. I had to leave Paris because my first time here went so badly. I joined my mom in Guyon because I'd become a drug addict. It was right after high school. I was going to university. I never really went to classes, but I walked around Paris a lot. We took acid and walked through the streets. We walked through Paris back and forth. I have a lot of memories from that, especially walking through a Paris that was incredible, a supernatural Paris, a gorgeous Paris. I had very few unpleasant encounters. Paris was always magical. I have amazing memories in Paris, and that's why I love Paris. That year was both terrible and extremely important for me in my love for the city. It's pretty funny. There's a lot of things that happened in my life around Saint-Michel because my mother lives there, because I lived there during a pretty weird year. There's something extremely touristy, so Parisian. It's completely overrated, and yet people live there. There's the Ile de la Cité with the courthouse. I have a buddy who's been through there a few times. A lot of things happened in that particular place. There's something symbolic in that place. It's true that as a Parisian, you almost never go to places like that. It's not a place where I go or live. It's a place where I can understand how outsiders see Paris. Like Alice, Françoise is also a native of the city. She was born in Châtillon, a banlieue on the southwestern edge of the city, and moved to the 14th arrondissement when she was 18. And 40 years later, that's still where she calls home. Like Alice, she loves Paris for the way that she feels there, for the way that she discovers it. For her, the act of discovery is also an act of homecoming. What I like about Paris, and what I think doesn't really exist anywhere else, is that there's a lot of spaces that are neither in the street nor in the home. There are in-between spaces, spaces that are semi-public. They're very complex and very rich historically. I find that very exciting. There's a full spectrum of sensations between how exposed you are in public spaces, like in the street, and in the intimacy of your home. I love it so much, all those passages and small streets, all those courtyards. In Paris, you push open a door and you end up below a house, or you end up in a courtyard or in a passageway. And this creates such a feeling of intimacy. And when it's shared, it also means protection. And that also creates the feeling of security that you can have in Paris, to feel secure but adventurous at the same time. Shuk, who came to Paris from Pointe-à-Pitre on the French Caribbean island Guadeloupe, discovered the heart of the city through its veins. He discovered a sense of belonging not on the streets, but in the underground. If I were to choose a place in particular, I'd say it's the blood vessels of the city. It's arteries, the underground, the places that allowed me to follow an artistic movement, the metro. Even today, I like taking the metro because it gives me a chance to observe society, to be able to draw a caricature of it. For many of the residents that I spoke to, their center had very little to do with places they still visit, but places where they left formative memories. For Anthony and Nava, 
Those memories are particularly strong from their years in university. Les endroits où, euh, bah, tout simplement les endroits où j'ai le plus évolué en fait. Comme je disais tout à l'heure, c'est le place où j'ai passé le plus de temps. Quand j'étais au collège, dans le 13 e à Tolbiac. Whenever I get off in the metro in that place, I feel a little nostalgic. I remember the walk to school, so many things happened there. There's also my boyfriend's apartment in Montmartre. We spent a lot of time in that area, know all the restaurants, all the bars. There's a real emotional path there. I never lived near the canal, but I've always liked that place, its openness. It's the same thing with the Pont des Arts near the Beaux-Arts. I think it has to do with how the water creates an open space. The water is very, very important. It's full of life. Like most city dwellers, Jacqueline lived in apartments for most of her life before buying land in Bois-le-Roi, the scenic, river-bound banlieue to the south of Paris. But at 94, she still lives in her Paris apartment for most of the year, meaning that for her, Paris's parks and gardens are a crucial lifeline. Alors, j'aime bien, par exemple, quand je peux, c'est aller encore au Palais Royal. When I have time, I like to go to the Palais Royal and its gardens. I like walking below the archways, sitting there. I also often go to the Luxembourg Gardens. I like taking the bus there, walking on the Boulevard Saint-Germain. I like sitting at a terrace and having a drink there. I've remained very Parisian. There are neighborhoods in Paris that I really like. I like the banks of the river, the Tuileries, and the Vergolon Garden. But now that's a little far for me. Back in the day, I used to love going there. For the other residents I spoke to, the center wasn't about what existed, but what could exist. Big infrastructure investments like the ones put forward in the Grand Paris plan had the possibility to connect Paris and the banlieue, completely reshaping the city for residents on both sides of the peripherique. For Anne and Samia, this means not only new connections between towns, but also between people. Moi, j'espère aussi que les nouveaux réseaux de transport qui sont en train de se construire au pourtour de donc le Grand Paris Express. I hope that the new transport networks that are being built around the outskirts of the Paris Expressway will allow people to explore differently. It will allow the people who live in this area to have new mobility, new rights, and in the same way, they'll allow people who live more centrally to come and discover all the resources and wonders of these areas, which are quite astonishing. There are many things going on here these days. There's a political emergence that tries to bring together 25 towns so that it's more dynamic culturally, economically and socially. They call it Plaine Commune. They are trying to make these towns viable. I keep up to date with what's going on in those cities. In the theaters, the concerts, debate about history, about the banlieue, about memory, because that's very important to me. There are really some very, very interesting things that are open to the public. There are really some very, very interesting things that are open to the public. 
There's one last account about ownership and the city that I'd like you to hear. Just as we started with a church, with Notre Dame, we're going to end with one too. Instead of being at the center of Paris, we're going to its highest point. The Basilique du Sacré-Cœur de Montmartre, or just the Sacré-Cœur, is in the very hilly neighborhood of Montmartre, in the 18th arrondissement, right at the northern edge of the city. Just like everything in Paris, it's a very complicated place. The Sacré-Cœur is a votive church, designed in 1875 and completed in 1914. It was built as both a penance and a vow. The penance was for ceding Paris to Germany after the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. The vow was a promise from the bourgeois ruling class of Paris to never let a revolt like the Paris Commune of 1871 ever happen again. The Paris Commune of 1871 was a historic revolt where the working class citizens of Paris seized their city against the wealthy ruling bourgeois class for nearly two months. It ended with the army of Versailles murdering and executing something between 6,000 and 20,000 Parisians in a week-long bloody tirade called the Semaine Sanglante. Essentially, the Sacré-Cœur is a monument justifying those murders. There's an ongoing debate as to whether to tear it down entirely and honor those who gave their lives during the Paris Commune. Sauf des mouchards et des gendarmes, on ne voit plus par les chemins que des vieillards. But as we talked about last episode, just because a project is built with a certain set of values doesn't mean those values are respected by the people who use it. In my interview with Steffi, she told me how people from the banlieue, the banlieusards, who are often discriminated against in the city center, use the stairs of the Sacré-Cœur as a place to hang out. From this point in Montmartre, you can see the whole city, and in those moments, their ownership of the city can't be denied or taken away. I'd like you to listen to Steffi's story in her own words first, and then the translation afterwards. Le Sacré-Cœur. Le Sacré-Cœur, pas tant pour l'église, parce que je ne suis pas très à l'aise autour des monuments religieux. Dedans, dehors, je ne suis pas très à l'aise. Mais les marches du Sacré-Cœur, c'est important pour moi. C'est un endroit important pour moi parce qu'on parce qu voit tout Paris de là. On voit tout Paris et, euh, et, et pareil, je pense que ça ressemble vachement à ma manière d'apprécier Paris. C'est que j'y vais souvent... En fait, le Sacré-Cœur, j'aime beaucoup cet endroit, le Sacré-Cœur, parce que déjà c'est ouvert, donc ça ne ferme jamais. Évidemment, le, enfin, le jardin ferme, mais les marches ne ferment pas. Donc c'est toujours accessible. Pendant la journée, il y a plein de touristes insupportables. Et le soir, il y a des banlieusards. Il y a des banlieusards qui viennent se, se caler là pendant trois heures. Parfois, ils s'embrouillent et parfois, ils sont juste là dans leur voiture. Et ils font rien, ils sont juste là. Et euh, j'aime bien le Sacré-Cœur pour ça parce que c'est un espèce de c'est comme un espèce de choc des cultures où tout d'un coup un endroit hyper hyper euh, symbolique euh, pour euh, pour la ville de Paris et pour les touristes se mélange d'un coup et la nuit il appartient à, il appartient un peu aux banlieusards et là je me retrouve. 
The Sacre Coeur. Not because of the church, because I don't feel very comfortable around religious monuments. But the steps in front of the Sacre Coeur. They're really important for me. You can see all of Paris from there, and that's kind of how I like Paris. I often go there. I like it because it never closes. You can always go on the steps. They're always accessible. During the day, it's unbearable. There are so many tourists. But in the evenings, you have people from the Banlieu. Some come and hang out for hours. Sometimes they get into fights. Sometimes they're just in their cars and don't do anything. They're just there. That's one of the reasons why I like the Sacré-Cœur. There's like a culture shock, and it's very symbolic of Paris. It's a mix, and at night, it kind of belongs to those people from the Banlieu, and I feel good there. Like Steffi, many of the residents I spoke to felt a sense of safety and belonging in the parts of the Parisian region where they had carved out a little piece of ownership. For Steffi, it's the steps of the Sacré-Cœur, where perched above the city and surrounded by other people from the banlieue, she feels the city belongs to her. For others, it's as small as their street corner, or their block or a place where their contribution to the culture of the city is valorized. For the entirety of the season, we've discussed different signals in public space that make people feel vulnerable or unwelcome, but there are also so many influences that allow residents to feel safe, and this safety doesn't necessarily come from police or military intervention. You might remember that at the end of the last few episodes, I've asked you for your questions and comments. One of the questions we got was exactly this question of how safety is signaled in public space. This is Anna calling in from Hong Kong. As another American abroad, I'm really interested in false perceptions of safety by outsiders. Are there signals that as an American, you read as safe that French people do not and vice versa? And what are some ideas about safety that people within Paris mistake when they cross over into neighborhoods they are unfamiliar with? This is a great question, but as an American, I really can't speak to the French experience on this, which is why Here There Be Dragons really revolves around primarily resident experiences. But I can speak to similarities that I heard in my interviews and that I've seen in my research. So one question is about police practices. Does the presence of the police or the presence of the military make people feel more welcome in public space or more safe? And the answer to that is a resounding no. In episode one, if you remember, most people said that seeing soldiers in the streets or seeing lots of police in the streets made them feel like something was always wrong. Another question is, you know, whose safety do the police protect? So there's this saying that you really shouldn't feel uncomfortable around the police if you haven't done anything wrong, but it really isn't that simple. So in 2002, the former Minister of the Interior, Nicolas Sarkozy, pulled a policy from Rudy Giuliani, um, former New York mayor's playbook, and instituted some 
policies of zero-tolerance policing in Paris, which really ramped up the amount of contact that police officers were making with residents and citizens. And there are many accounts of what happened because of this fallout of policy, and I encourage people to definitely read those excellent accounts like Didier Fassin's Enforcing Order and Ethnography of Urban Policing is an excellent source of talking about essentially what happened on the ground when zero-tolerance policing came to Paris. And essentially, it follows this trajectory of colonial policing where the police develop this antagonistic relationship with immigrants and especially with French people of North African or Arab descent and especially with young people as well. One last thing that I'd like to bring up about signaling safety is the question of safe spaces that Esther brought up in episode three about communitarianism. The term safe spaces essentially has come out of American college-age students advocating for spaces that are safe for minority or marginalized students on campus. What safe spaces has become is this kind of meme that characterizes students who want to censor or want to be babied or essentially don't want to listen to views that are opposing to theirs. What I'd like to point out is that every space is a safe space to someone. And these spaces are historically the safest for people who have the most power and the least amount of accountability towards other people. So as an example, if you're in a corporate space that doesn't take seriously reporting about sexist and racist uh, acts that have happened in that space, then that space de facto becomes a safe space for racist and sexist acts and essentially censors people who are experiencing or are the victims of those acts because it's saying to them that essentially their jobs are on the line or their likability is on the line if they continue to report them. So what I'm hoping that the podcast has done is explain that one person's safety or one person's safe space can actually be a very hostile space for someone else. Essentially that the idea of safety is quite personal, but also ties into the histories of systemic oppression, and that can really play into who feels the safest in a space. The last question comes from Leopold, who I interviewed for the show, but he also interviewed me for his podcast, Archipelago. He asked me what I thought about safety and security rhetoric being used as a political tool to enable discriminatory policies to get more public support. I think it is very manipulative, but what it does is say everyone has one kind of fear, everyone has one kind of sense of insecurity, and we can only respond to that sense of insecurity in one way. But what I think is so interesting coming out of these conversations is the way that insecurity or like safety and the way that people are feeling feel safe and don't feel safe have relatively little to do with what a police officer can take care of. So it's just like, you know, I was talking to one woman who was describing how they're like a new gendarmerie or a new police station open close to her house. So there are like huge groups of like, you know, men, uh, armed men (laughs) standing around on the street where she lives. And she'll walk by in like a short skirt and she'll see that the police officer is standing on the 
sidewalk are checking her out. And it's just like, how whiz, is whiz weapons? Yeah, and it's like, how am I? How does that feel any different from like the teenage boys who stand in front of the the high school doing the same thing? And it's just like, so it's, it's like a woman being able to wear a short skirt and have it not be an issue is not something that the police can really respond to. So it's just like, how can we make, how can we, and I think that this gets to the heart of just like hearing other people speak, hearing other people speak about their safety and like bringing that to the forefront is saying, if we can just get an understanding of what's going through people's heads when they see us, see us look at them in the street how can we how can we as individuals like make public space safer for each other by just not being being a little less horrible to each other because we have a better understanding of what people are going through So that was an interview that I did with Leopold in the middle of my field research many months before I started editing this podcast. You can hear the entire interview on the Funambulist podcast, Archipelago. It came out about three months ago. Something that I would like to emphasize is that security rhetoric is very manipulative. And it's also the driving force in much of our global politics right now, often at the cost of everything else. And this is what I was reflecting on when I heard about the shooting that happened on the Champs-Élysées, when a shooter, a 39-year-old French citizen, murdered a police officer and wounded two others. It seems that the hyper-nationalist, anti-immigrant political party, the Front National, stands to benefit from this tragedy, despite the fact that no immigrant was committing a crime. It also seems that nationalist, anti-immigrant parties across the West benefit any time these tragedies occur. And yet, when we turn to our most hateful rhetoric to protect us, when we turn to our largest bombs, to our highest walls, to our strictest travel bans, they just don't seem to protect us in the ways that we had hoped. Perhaps it's because the people that they put in power never truly had our safety at heart. Perhaps that's because true safety has very little to do with discrimination and isolation. I don't have all the answers on how we can begin to take each other's individual sense of safety into consideration. And I will still continue to post writings and clips on the HTBD podcast website, so look out for them there. And if you still have questions or comments, please continue to send them to htbdpodcast at gmail.com. This is only the beginning of a discussion that I hope that this series was able to inspire. And I hope that this conversation can continue long after this episode ends. Thanks for listening. This has been the second season of Here There Be Dragons. But not only is this the second season of this podcast, it's also my master's thesis for my degree in city planning at MIT. Each one of your comments, your questions, and contributions have become a part of my research and my thesis committee, and for that, I thank you. I'd also like to thank my sponsors at MIT Council for the Arts, who made this season possible, to my wonderful producer, Adelie Pajmont-Ponte, who edited this podcast from an ocean away, and to my thesis advisor, Anne Spurn, and my second reader, Renee Green, and everyone who agreed to be interviewed for this show. So to Adelie, to Alexandre, to Alice, 
Allison, Anne, Anthony, Oralie, Bernard, Danya, Eric, Donnie, Esther, Evelyn, Franck, Frank, Françoise, Hervé, Isabelle, Jacob, Jacqueline, Jean-Claude, Jennifer, Leopold, Moena, Mehdi, Nava, Ossien, Samia, Shukwan, Steffi, and Yassine, as well as Fabrice Dalmeda, Sylvie Tissot, Maurice Blanc, and Mohamed Amadeus Mack. Thank you to everyone who voiced the English translations. Full credits will be up on the website, and I'd also like to thank Corey Lee Jacobs for the original music and his trio, Octopus 2000, for the theme music for this show. Be sure to check out their EP on Bandcamp. As always, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, or follow us on Twitter at dragons underscore podcast, and check out our website, htbdpodcast.com, for more Here There Be Dragons. We'll be sending out the second newsletter next week, so if you haven't subscribed, go ahead and do that at the bottom of our webpage. Lastly, for this season, I'm your host, Jess Myers. Thank you for joining me for these stories of fear, identity, and urban life.